0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. If you asked Judith Johnson how her boyfriend Lee Morgan was going to die on February eighteenth, 1972, she probably would have blamed the weather. The blizzard was just getting started as Lee drove Judith's car through the Bronx, but ice already coated the cobblestones. Judith didn't know if he was using methadone that night, but the way the tire slid with every tight turn concerned her. Seeing the mounting snow outside, she wished she was safe at home in New Jersey. Lee flew down the Grand Concourse, trying to beat the worst of the storm when the car's tires suddenly lost traction in the snow. For one brief moment, Lee felt like they were floating, the car sliding gracefully across the pavement. Then they hit the curb. It took a moment for the storm outside to come back into focus. Lee wiggled his fingers, arms and legs were still working, no blood. In the passenger seat, a dazed-looking Judith opened the car door. The crash had shaken them, but they'd be fine. The car was a different story. They'd completely totaled it. They both doubted a tow truck could get through the icy streets, so Lee and Judith went onward to slugs, Lee's trumpet in hand. When Lee came in the door at slugs that night, his bandmates remembered he looked bewildered. He ran to the bathroom, sick with adrenaline and anxiety. He couldn't believe how lucky he was. It was like he'd cheated death. But Lee didn't realize that death didn't wait for him out on the snowy streets. It was already inside slugs. And that night, death would find Lee Morgan. Laney Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from ParCast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator, If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we saw how Lee Morgan's musical brilliance led him to jazz stardom, and how his struggles with addiction brought him down to the gutter. We also discuss the auspicious start and eventual breakdown of his relationship with Helen Morgan. This week, we'll track the moments leading up to Helen and Lee's last act. We'll reflect on Lee's legacy and how Helen cut down a rising musician and political activist before he got to make his mark. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: That's Science VS.
0: New
2: season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name every revelation brings us closer to the
0: truth. 46-year-old Helen Morgan fumed as she paced the floors in her Bronx apartment. 33-year-old Lee Morgan, the man she called her common-law husband, was out again without her. Though she hadn't wanted to admit it to herself, deep down she knew something had been going on. She'd known for months. Lee hadn't been shy about his dalliances with other women. She'd even spied him kissing a girl at the apartment door. When she confronted him about it, he denied it ever happened. But Helen had heard through the Jazz Grapevine that Lee was also involved with a young woman who looked like Angela Davis. He'd take his dates out on the town and even introduce them to his friends. But he'd deny it all to Helen, even if his bandmates were the ones who told her. He'd make her feel like she'd invented these affairs. Before I continue with Lee's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. This tactic that Lee used is called gaslighting. While it may appear like Lee just gave Helen lame excuses to hide his infidelity, The truth is more insidious. Gaslighting is a form of manipulation often used by psychological abusers. By feeding people blatantly false information or claiming not to know what they're talking about, gaslighters keep their victims off kilter. It can severely affect the gaslighted person's memory and even their sense of reality if it goes on long enough. People often gaslight for two reasons, which often intersect. Firstly, they may simply enjoy messing with other people by warping their perception. Secondly, gaslighters may wish to psychologically control another person and manipulate them into behaving in a certain way. By gaslighting Helen, Lee knocked the normally tough solid woman off balance. He wanted to manipulate her to ignore his blatant cheating and he wanted her to overlook how he ignored her. Lee had only ducked in their apartment earlier that night to pick up his trumpet. He barely even bothered to invite Helen to his gig at Slug Saloon down in Alphabet City. And then he was right back out the door. Helen knew why, she wasn't stupid. The reason's name was Judith Johnson, Lee's girlfriend. He met her out playing at the Cotton Club in Atlantic City. She and her family worked in the black cabarets out there. Unlike Helen's stoic beauty, Judith was a striking woman, and she was young, closer to Lee's own age. Helen had seen this plenty of times before in the New York jazz scene. Musicians would get themselves someone to take care of them, keep them housed and fed and sober, and then they'd wander. But Helen wasn't like that. She later told an interviewer, I'm not one of those women that you can talk about as the main woman, and you got somebody else out there. I'm not built that way. That's not me. She hoped he'd come to his senses if she cut him off, so she stopped going to his shows. But that didn't make a difference to Lee. Instead, he put Judith in the front row in Helen's usual seat. Helen and Lee's common-law marriage had developed as a codependent relationship, and now that it was breaking apart, Helen felt angry enough to lash out. Simply put, codependency is a toxic relationship style, not a mental illness or emotional disorder. One partner takes on the role of caretaker, and their world revolves around their counterparts' health and happiness. Helen took care of Lee, giving up her individual identity to become a motherly force in his life. She was utterly devoted to him, managing his career and supporting him through rehab. Without him, Helen had nothing left to anchor her sense of identity. And there was a deeper sense of betrayal grating on her. Helen was the one who fixed Lee when he was broken. He'd still be out on the street if she hadn't opened her home to him. Without her, he wouldn't be able to play again. He wouldn't be able to love anyone. And now someone else was enjoying the fruits of Helen's labor. Codependent people find breakups daunting, even when a relationship is no longer working. According to psychotherapist Sharon Martin, Thinking about ending an attachment can trigger feelings of shame, rejection, and extreme loneliness or jealousy. Helen was most likely struggling to hang on to a relationship that was in its death throes. And since she was codependent with and possessive towards Lee, she felt she couldn't give him up. If she couldn't have him, then nobody could. On Friday, February 18th, Helen spoke with a friend at her apartment about her relationship with Lee. Helen declared she was going out to slugs at night to see Lee play. The friend begged her to stay, but she refused. Just before Helen left, she made sure she had her 32 caliber pistol in her purse. It was a present from Lee for her protection. Tonight, she would need it. Down in the East Village, Slugs was sizzling. The club was low and grimy with sawdust on the floors to soak up spilled drinks. Patrons shouted and laughed as they listened to the music. In the middle of the room, at the end of a long bar, Lee's jazz quintet was blowing the roof off the place. Lee had arrived late and shaken that night with Judith and tow. According to one bandmate, His nerves were so fried, he even threw up. But it hadn't affected his playing. Lee was like a living legend, returned to jazz from the brink of addiction. He flew high as he played one blistering trumpet solo after another. And as the midnight set wound down in the early hours of February 19th, Lee felt invincible. But then, something happened that Lee didn't see coming. The doors of Slug swung open and there stood Helen, unmistakable in her large hat, silhouetted like a spaghetti Western villain in the low light. Helen sat with a friend at a table, waiting for Lee to finish. But when the band took their mid-set break, Lee didn't come to greet her. Instead, he sat down with another group and started talking to a pretty woman sitting there. Helen seethed. This must be Judith Johnson, Lee's other woman. And Lee flirted with her, right out in the open, like he didn't care who saw him. He wouldn't even pay her the courtesy of lying about it anymore. Helen walked up to Lee's bandmates at the bar, visibly irate. She asked Lee's friend to intervene and get Lee to send Judith home. When Lee refused to get rid of Judith, Helen knew her worst suspicions were true. So she decided that it was time for the lying to end. Helen accused Lee of cheating on her. Judith, thinking Lee had already left Helen, asked him to tell her the truth. Lee fired back enraged, yelling that he was not with her. Lee's denial echoed through the bar, ringing in Helen's ears. She slapped him. Whether it was out of reflex or anger, she couldn't be sure, but she felt better hearing the loud smack of her palm hitting his cheek. Enraged, Lee pushed Helen to the door and threw her out of the club, where she landed in a wet pile of snow. Helen didn't even have her coat, but she did have her bag and the gun inside. Helen got to her feet and headed back towards the bar. She pulled the gun out and held it, the metal heavy and solid in her hand. The bouncer tried to stop her, Lee's orders, but Helen was past caring. According to Helen, she flashed him the gun and he stepped aside. Helen stuffed the gun back in her pocketbook, but kept her hand on the grip. She registered that there were other people in the bar. She caught flashes of faces and the buzz of voices, but all she saw was Lee. She walked right up to him, her hand on the gun in her bag. And when he turned to face her, she remembered the rage in his eyes. He was angry with her, when by all rights, she was the one who should be mad. She'd sacrificed everything for Lee put him up when no one would, got him playing the trumpet again, and this was how he repaid her with a new girlfriend and public humiliation. But she wasn't done. If he wanted a scene, she'd make a scene, one he'd never forget. She pulled out the gun, pointing it at Lee. He lunged at her, hands outstretched to grab the weapon from her hands. His eyes blazed with anger as they struggled over the weapon. Helen broke free of Lee's grasp and raised the gun, aiming it right at his heart. And before she could think, she pulled the trigger. Coming up, we'll see the aftermath of Helen and Lee's deadly love. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever
2: found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Stephania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thoroughgood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed Confess to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast. Airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some...
0: The saxophonist Billy Harper remembered standing at the bar when he heard the gunshot. He and the rest of the quintet were taking their break when Helen came back inside Slug Saloon to settle her score with Lee. He recalled hearing a noise, kind of like a pop, that cut through the din of the bar. But it wasn't until Lee fell down that he realized what occurred. Stories diverge on precisely what happened next and how Helen reacted once she realized what she'd done. According to Helen's own recollection, the calm, measured composure she'd held through their fight broke into pieces the moment Lee hit the floor. Tears streamed from her eyes. She repeated over and over how sorry she was. She knelt over Lee, where he lay bleeding on the sawdust-covered floor. According to Helen, Lee said, I'm sorry too, Helen. I know you didn't mean to do this. But other eyewitnesses remember the scene differently. According to Paul West, Helen screamed, Morgan, why did you make me do this? Lee Morgan didn't die instantly, but it was still too late for him. The blizzard that totaled Judith's car had made the roads treacherous. It took almost an hour for an ambulance to get down to Slug's. While they waited, Helen stayed by Lee's side. It was like something inside her was pushed so far it broke. She couldn't leave Lee, but by the time the ambulance loaded him up and took him to the hospital, the 33-year-old trumpeter was dead. The police arrived and arrested Helen for murder, It's not entirely clear if they took her into custody then or just ordered her to report to court the following day. There isn't much record of what happened next for Helen. As with her early life, most of this information comes from an interview with Helen herself. In an odd stroke of fate, the New York musicians she'd been supporting for years had her back and her lawyer even convinced her to plead not guilty. According to Helen's own words, this whole period seemed dreamlike and surreal to her. She didn't understand why she wasn't pleading guilty. After all, she had killed Lee. She was there. She knew what happened. Helen was likely experiencing a short-term phenomenon called psychological shock. Triggered by unexpected stress or trauma Shock can cause anxiety and make your mind feel foggy. Many people also have the sensation of being disconnected from things happening around them, like they're watching a movie of something rather than living through it. Between the murder, her arrest, and going to jail, it probably took days for Helen to feel normal again. While Helen awaited her fate in New York, Lee's loved ones mourned in Philadelphia. On Friday, February 25th, 1972, hundreds of people in long black winter coats and dresses descended on the Church of the Advocate. Over a thousand people came to pay their respects to Lee during the day, and a thousand more packed into the church that night for the funeral. There were performances from New York and Philadelphia jazz giants. Friends shared poems and memories. In his eulogy, Lee's friend Ed Williams said his life was like, quote, the flight of a bird who had reached his highest altitude in life, and then he fell. His wings were broken. The shock and sadness was palpable all the way up to the rafters. The jazz community had lost its prodigal son just when he'd returned stronger than ever. Back in New York City, the police sent Helen to Rikers Island to await her trial. After a few weeks, when her appointed lawyer only paid her one visit, she realized that she was on her own once again. Just like when she'd first come to the city, the only one who was going to help Helen Morgan was her own self. So she fired her lawyer shortly before the trial. Not much record of the trial and sentencing survives, as her case file seems to have been taken out of the county clerk's office. But we know that she was convicted of second-degree manslaughter. She reportedly only served two years and was released on probation. After serving her time, Helen Morgan found herself almost alone in the world. While she still had her mother and some friends kept calling her, the one person she needed to survive, the source of her happiness, Was dead by her own hand. The way that Helen killed Lee was uniquely devastating, both for the victim and the murderer. For instance, men commit the vast majority of interrelationship homicides. According to the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence, between 1980 and 2008, around 40% of murdered women were killed by their partner. Conversely, only 4.9% of male murder victims were killed by a lover. And Helen's method of killing in a moment of anger is also uncommon for women. According to one 2001 study, Women who kill their husbands are likely to have suffered physical abuse at their hands. As far as we can tell, this didn't happen in Helen and Lee's relationship. In another study from 1995, researchers Patrick A. Langan and John W. Dawson examined over 500 spousal homicides across the country. They found that 44% of the female killers they studied had killed in response to their husband's violence, only 10% of men did the same. Over the years, both researchers and courts have found that most women who kill their partners suffer from a disorder called battered women syndrome. In the late 1970s, psychotherapist Lenore Walker first identified this issue. Walker argued that women suffering from domestic abuse can sometimes follow a behavior pattern similar to post-traumatic stress disorder their brains develop it after an extended period of navigating cycles of abuse. According to most studies, suffering prolonged abuse and the fear for their lives are what drive women to kill. But as far as we can tell from the information we have, Lee didn't physically abuse Helen. She was incredibly devoted to him, but there's no evidence that she built that devotion on the threat of physical violence. So something else must have happened in Helen's mind. A 2017 study took a look at intimate partner homicide in Australia, focusing specifically on cases where the couple did not experience violence before the murder. In these instances, 40% of offenders killed their partners due to jealousy over a romantic rival. However, these again were all committed by male perpetrators. Helen's rage is not unique. Countless women in heterosexual relationships experience jealousy, anger, envy, and doubt over a perceived romantic threat, but Helen took it a step further than most women. Though it's not clear precisely what may have triggered Helen, it's possible her response was rooted in past trauma. In last week's episode, we talked about Helen's pregnancies at age 13 and 14, possibly as the result of abuse. She had also worked as a drug runner in the 1950s. She definitely had pain and hardship in her past, but it's unclear whether she had a formal diagnosis, like what we understand now as post-traumatic stress disorder. And while this might provide some context to her mental state, it ultimately doesn't absolve her. The jazz community felt shattered by Lee Morgan's death. Many of his friends felt bewildered not only because Lee was gone, but because Helen was the reason why. Lee's friend and band member, saxophonist Benny Maupin, said in an interview that he had trouble finding a sense of closure. He was in San Francisco, recording with band leader Herbie Hancock when he got the call that Lee was dead and Helen was his killer. As Benny put it, he hadn't just lost Lee, He lost two friends that night. He remembered Helen as a warm, loving person. He found his image of her almost impossible to reconcile with the news coming in from New York. Though it took years, Benny ultimately forgave Helen. He blamed the incident on a reaction to something in Helen's past. As he put it, that was temporary insanity. When she killed him, she killed herself. Up next, we re-examine Lee's legacy. Now, back to the story. In 1972, Lee Morgan felt set to make his mark on the world. The jazz community in New York and Philadelphia already knew of his talent. But now, ready for a fresh start, Lee was at the precipice of an incredible rise to fame. And beyond that, for the first time, Lee was getting involved. In his new dedication to jazz, he saw a niche that needed filling in the intersection of jazz music and civil rights activism. Jazz music has always been a language for change. It is truly an American genre, growing out of the mixed traditions of New Orleans in the early 20th century. At the time, New Orleans was home to many musical cultures coming out of Europe because of the city's history as a former French colony. Musicians in New Orleans started mixing these European styles with those of Black Americans. Enslaved people had brought musical instruments and traditions over from Africa, and especially West Africa. Black and Creole musicians in New Orleans were then soon incorporating elements from the blues with popular styles like ragtime and large brass bands. Many musicians who were not classically trained introduced improvisation into the art form, and jazz was born. By 1917, it had spread across the country. That year, the original Dixieland jazz band cut the first-ever jazz record. It was a hit. From its earliest days, Music born out of Black American traditions became a vehicle for their fight for freedom. In 1939, jazz singer Billie Holiday shocked audiences with the song, Strange Fruit, a musical poem decrying the lynching of Black people in the South. By the 1960s, when the civil rights movement was in full swing, Jazz musicians still use their music to signal their support. Jazz singer Nina Simone released Mississippi God Damn in 1964 to respond to the murder of four little girls in the Birmingham church bombing. This song was banned in many of the southern states, its lyrics criticized. In the early 1970s, Lee Morgan continued this tradition He became an organizer of the Jazz and People's Movement. This was the same group he led on stage during a taping of the Merv Griffin Show in 1970. The Jazz and People's Movement was envisioned as a counterpart to the civil rights movement for the New York jazz community. It was open to all members, not just musicians. Even Helen was involved in the movement, although in a smaller role than Lee. Lee's two goals for the organization were to address representation and economic disparity among black jazz artists. Firstly, he wanted more black jazz musicians featured on network shows. At the time, black representation of any kind on the main networks was severely lacking. In 1973, three years after Lee stormed the Murph Griffin Show, only 6.3% of their shows featured black actors or presenters. Back in 1970, after the protest, there was a slight increase in programming, and Lee and other organizers were interviewed on huge talk shows like Dick Cavett and even Ed Sullivan. If Lee had lived past 33, it's possible he would have expanded these efforts or become directly involved with other civil rights causes. It is certain that if he had more time, he'd spend it cementing the legacy of jazz, as the most pure American art form. Near the end of his life, Lee began to call jazz black classical music. As Lee said in an interview, I don't even like the word jazz really. I think it's a bad word. It's not a word that we made up. It's a word that we were told what it was. In the 1970s, jazz was on a decline. It was no longer considered popular music overshadowed by rock and roll and soul music. And as such, Lee was afraid that if he did nothing to stop it, jazz would fade away into obscurity. Instead, according to him, jazz should have been treated the way Western classical music was, like Beethoven and Bach. In 1970, Lee spoke to a music magazine called Downbeat about his love of jazz and his hopes for its future. He compared his own situation with Leonard Bernstein, the talented composer and conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. He said, "'See, Leonard Bernstein plays to a minority audience, too, because everybody can't like symphony orchestras. But symphony orchestras are subsidized, and jazz should be subsidized. This is the only thing from America. The United States ain't got nothing else but what we gave it, man. He argued that like classical music, the American government should foster and financially support jazz, but both types of music were treated vastly differently. He said, maybe this music of ours isn't meant for the masses, but he's held as a great conductor and he lives in a penthouse and he's rich and he conducts the New York Philharmonic in Lincoln Center and Coltrane had to be playing in slugs. That's the difference. Though Lee wouldn't live to see it, his dream wasn't far off from coming true. Later in the 1970s, formal jazz courses and programs began to be more commonly offered at universities. Lee's contemporaries from the New York scene were brought in to lecture and perform. Today, Lee's dream has been partially realized. Federal programs like the National Endowment for the Arts give awards to a jazz legend every year, and independent organizations like the Jazz Foundation of America both foster a love of jazz and support musicians. Currently, they're hosting a fund to financially support musicians out of work due to the COVID pandemic. Perhaps Lee could have played an instrumental role in the movement for jazz preservation. He may have even played a role in developing the next generation of new jazz talent. In 1971, Lee started teaching teenage players at the Jazzmobile Project, a program run by the Harlem Community Council. At first, this program exposed young Harlemites to jazz. Eventually, it grew to include regular concerts and music courses. Lee felt it was a mission to impart everything he knew about playing jazz and the blues. But Lee didn't stop there. He also lectured his young students on making a living in the music business. He shared his own hard-earned business savvy and the things he didn't know about contracts and ownership at their age. Under his watch, the next generation of jazz musicians would not be exploited the way he and his colleagues were. And Lee's focus on supporting up-and-comers extended to his own band— When he got clean from heroin in the early 1970s and put together his own lineup, Lee encouraged every member to try composing music. Around this time, he expressed frustration with his own style and looked for a new sound. He saw his young bandmates' compositions as a way to find a new direction for his music. He told a friend, Man, I'm tired of that bebop, hard bop stuff. I've been playing that for over 20 years. I want to go in some new directions. Just before he died, Lee Morgan made his first steps in the new direction he was looking for. It combined his search for new musical forms with his newly revitalized interest in Black civil rights, and his inspiration came from an unlikely place. In 1970... Three prisoners at Soledad Prison in California attempted an escape during a trial. Four people died in the ensuing shootout. Angela Davis, a professor, activist, and Black Panther associate, was immediately wanted by the FBI for her alleged involvement. The government charged her with providing the guns used in the escape attempt and soon arrested her. Like many Black community members and activists, Lee believed the government's case against Angela Davis was thin, so he asked his bandmate, Jimmy Merritt, to write a piece in support of her. The new song was unlike anything Lee had ever played. It consisted of seven minutes of collective improvisation. There were no solos. At all times, all instruments were playing together. Inspired by Angela's communist philosophy, it was a musical symbol of communal cooperation. The song, called Angela, was mellow with an avant-garde progression and complicated rhythms. It was only a taste of what Lee was capable of in his Renaissance period. Without drugs clouding his mind, he was thinking intentionally about what he wanted his music to be and his legacy. But unfortunately, Angela was as far as Lee would ever get. It would be his final musical mark on the world, literally. According to some witnesses, the last song Lee played at Slugs, before his altercation with Helen, was Angela. The aftermath of that night at Slugs was devastating for Helen. After she served her jail time, she practically disappeared, the woman who once cut a figure on the streets of Hell's Kitchen with her smart dresses and tough attitude became a wallflower shrinking into the crowd. It was like Helen was a different person. She grew deeply depressed in jail. As her son later recounted, it was as if she wished she had shot herself rather than kill Lee. She was tortured over what she'd done And when she got out around 1974 or 1975, she couldn't stand the noise, the lights, the music of New York City. Perhaps it reminded her too much of her life before the murder. So Helen packed her bags and moved back to Wilmington, North Carolina. She lost touch with most of the New York jazz scene. She took care of her aging mother and became involved with the local church. She learned to be quiet. Helen continued living like that for more than a decade until she took a Western Civilization class through Shaw University in 1988. There, she met Larry Rennie Thomas, and after years of convincing, she finally sat down with him in 1996 to tell her side of the story. In the interview, it's abundantly clear that what Helen did to Lee destroyed her. She talked about struggling with her relationship with him, sometimes seeing him as a partner and other times like a possession. But from the moment she pulled the trigger, she knew she had made the biggest mistake of her life. In February 1996, a month after she spoke to Larry, she passed away, marking the end of a jazz history chapter. Lee's surviving friends and fans have a complicated relationship with Helen and what she did, mainly because many of them were friends with her too. Before the murder, friends recalled Helen as the most compassionate person they'd met. Lee's friends credited her with getting Lee back on his feet and getting him to the place where he could impact music and politics. Ironically, It appears like Lee would have never reached the heights he achieved without Helen. She supported him and cleaned him up, enabling him to record some of his best, most innovative new music near the end of his life. Because of her, he had the energy and the health to get involved in the civil rights movement and to directly influence a new generation of musicians. Helen put Lee on the trajectory to greatness Perhaps, given a few more years, his name would be as recognizable as Miles Davis. But in the darkest irony, the very hands that set him on his path cut his journey short. While he was alive, Lee possibly had an inkling that he'd only have a limited time on Earth. He discussed musicians Clifford Brown and John Coltrane, both of whose lives were cut short. He remarked in an interview Every time I heard Clifford, and now when I hear Train, I get the impression that the doctor told them, You've got to play everything you know today because you won't get a chance tomorrow. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Helen and Lee Morgan, amongst the many sources we used, we found Tom Purchard's book, Lee Morgan, His Life, Music, and Culture, and Larry Rennie Thomas's book, The Lady Who Shot Lee Morgan, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. When true love... Meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Molly Quinlan, Mickey Taylor, and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs.